Let's be seated together. It's a great joy to gather in God's house with you today on this first Sunday in Advent as we look forward to marking the coming of the Lord into the world. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. We're going to be picking it up in in verse 67 as we consider four passages in this gospel over the coming weeks that are songs. Um, I have had the privilege of living in three great music cities, Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, and Boca Raton, Florida. <laughs> okay, okay, maybe, maybe that's a stretch. But if we, we stretch the boundary out a little bit and you travel down I-95, you'll see there's an entire building that's a giant guitar sitting right on the road. We all have a certain soundtrack in our lives and the music uh, that we enjoy is something which is, is uh, important in our hearts, in our relationships and very important, of course, this time of year. Um, there's a there is, of course, a, a business end of that. Hunter Thompson wrote, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. Well, <laughs> we are thankful for, for the music that comes into our lives. It is so important. In fact, I discovered this last week that the most watched non-sports TV program in America is something I've never seen called The Masked Singer. Apparently six or seven of you have seen this. Um, and uh, in this, um, a celebrity vocalist or vocalists are, are dressed in really ornate costumes and giant masks and and a celebrity panel has to ascertain who this, this singer really is. And at the end, the audience is all chanting together the line from the Who, great Who song, Who are you? And they finally discover the person who's behind the music. Well, the Bible is a song. In fact, large portions of it really are music. The biggest book in the Bible, the Psalms, is of course, and sometimes we need to be reminded about this, a book of lyrics, a book of music, because God's people have always sung back to him our lamentation, our celebration, our prayers, our desires. We have done this because he has sung his love song into our lives. He did that through the prophets, so often they used music to tell us what God was saying. And Luke structures the first couple of chapters of his gospel around these songs. It doesn't show up on the slide. If you have a print version of the Bible, you'll see that what we're about to read is set apart like a lyric. It is a song that's in the form of or it's rather a prophecy that's in the form of a song. And it comes from a man named Zacharias. Who was Zacharias and what is this about? Why is Luke paying any attention to it whatsoever? Well, Zacharias was a priest. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. They were 
quite old. He had served for many years as a priest at the temple in Jerusalem. There were so many priests, historians tell us in that day, that a man was chosen only once to go into the temple and burn incense in the holy place. One time in your life, that's it. That was your one chance. And then after that, you didn't do it again. And so when we read that he is old and he is called to burn incense, we know he's been waiting a long time. You can imagine that must have been hard, waiting for so long for his name to be called, seeing younger people go before him and going, well, when's my name gonna be called? When do I get to go into the holy of place? But you know, God has a timing in our lives, doesn't he? It's not always our timing. But it wasn't the only thing he was waiting on. He and Elizabeth had been waiting on a child. They had no children in a culture that viewed barrenness as a kind of curse. So they endured a kind of social stigma. And probably people looked at him and said, well, his name hasn't been called because, you know, he's probably not in favor with God, not knowing that this man was a special vessel that God had chosen. And finally, his name was called. And he went into the temple that day to offer up incense before the Lord there in the holy place. And when he got in, finally, after all of those years, he's just getting ready to worship and an angel appears to him. It's the angel Gabriel. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of angels. A lot of people have the wrong idea about angels. Some people think they're like little chubby babies with bows and arrows floating around on clouds. But in the Bible, angels are fierce. They're large. They're frightening. And so Gabriel appears to him, and he says, Zacharias, the Lord is going to fulfill his promise, and your wife, Elizabeth, even though you've been waiting for a long time, you're going to have a child, and he's going to be a great prophet that goes ahead of the Messiah. And Zacharias, because you know, waiting a long time can increase your doubts sometimes rather than your faith. Zacharias says, how's that going to happen? And Gabriel says, do you know who I am? He says to him, in effect, are you talking to me? You talking to me? Do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent here to give you this message. Listen, big mouth, you're not going to be able to say another word until the baby's born. And that was it. Couldn't talk again. Well, after the proper period of gestation, miraculously, this child is born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And in that moment, it comes time to name him. And they figure he's going to be called Zach Jr., that would have been the normal occurrence. He would have been Zach Jr., Zacharias, son of Zacharias. But his mother says, no, his name's supposed to be John. And they go, wait a minute, that doesn't mean you don't have anybody named John in your family. And so they turn to Zacharias and he writes on a tablet. It would have been a wax tablet. And he writes, not your iPad, he writes on there, John, his name will be called John. And as soon as he writes that name, his Mouth was opened and he could speak again. And when he did, he gave this prophecy. Verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit 
and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed be, in Latin, Benedictus. That's why this hymn is called the Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a redemption song. This is a a song, a prophetic word that God has heard the cry of his people which has been in their hearts for centuries and has answered it. You can see it when he starts talking with the language that says God is saving us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He's remembered his oath, the promise he made to Abraham, and he's coming now to redeem us. If you were an Israelite and you started talking about the promise made to Abraham and the fact that God was coming to redeem his people and visit his people, every single person that heard that kind of language in that moment, in that time, would have thought of the Exodus. God had promised Abraham that 400 years later, his descendants would be slaves in Egypt, but God would deliver them. God would come and visit his people. That's what happened when he called Moses to himself. He said, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their affliction. I've come down to deliver them. I'm sending you. I'm sending you as a prophet to announce my deliverance. I'm going to save my people from slavery, from death. They were throwing the Hebrew children into the Nile River. And that that narrative of redemption became the kind of framework for all that God was doing in saving his people. And my friends, today... In this scripture, we find the fulfillment that God spoke to his people and brought to them a savior, the horn of salvation that he raised up in the house of David to redeem from an even greater slavery and tyranny than Egypt, the slavery and tyranny of death, of hell, that God had promised to send a savior. And the child of Zacharias, And Elizabeth would go ahead of him and prepare the way for that Messiah to be revealed. 
Because for hundreds of years, God had through his prophets built on that initial promise to Abraham. And he had said a Messiah was coming. And they had waited and waited and waited. Just like Zechariah and Elizabeth had waited and waited and waited. God calls us to wait at times. And we are by nature an impatient people. You can see this at every Traffic light in beautiful downtown Boca. You're just stopped there contemplating Jesus and praying and thinking holy thoughts. And, and the light turns from red to green. In fact, it doesn't get fully to green. And someone behind you encourages you to get moving. Because we're in a hurry. We got people to see, places to go. There's stuff to do. Get moving. We're an impatient people. We tap our toes in front of microwaves yelling, hurry, come on. But God's people had waited decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia. And now this old man and this old woman have a baby. God is fulfilling his promise. He always has. He always does. He said to Jeremiah, I'm watching over my word to perform it. That's what God does. He makes a promise. He keeps a promise. Look at it again in 72. What's God doing in this salvation? This is the faithfulness of God. He has come to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God made an oath, he made a promise, and he's going to keep it. You see that really in the names of this beautiful couple. Zacharias, his name means this. His, Zacharias means God remembers and Elizabeth means God is my oath. And when God remembers and God is my oath got together, they gave birth to John the Baptist. Because God makes a promise and he never forgets it. He binds himself to us in a covenant bond that says, I will give myself to you. I will come and deliver you. Zechariah says that God is fulfilling his word to rescue us from our enemies. And anybody hearing that would have said, great, the Romans are gonna be thrown out. But God's faithfulness had something deeper in mind. And this is the mercy of God. Look again at verse 72. Why is God coming to save us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us? to show the mercy promised to our fathers. What does mercy do? Grace forgives the sin that we've committed. Mercy undoes the damage our sins have brought about. Mercy is needed along with grace because while when we do something wrong, we confess it and we say, God, Forgive me. We're actually, of course, acknowledging that we're saved by grace 
through faith in Christ. But God not only forgives our sins, it says in John, he goes on to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Tony and I had built a house when we were living in Kentucky some years ago, and and it was in that phase, we just moved in, but the yard wasn't in yet. And so really, it was a house sitting in a, a giant sea of mud. And we had um, been to um, an event, and we were coming home. We had our oldest children, our two oldest kids, who were very small at the time. They were with us, and, and uh, they got out of the car. And of course, before we, they got out of the car, they were very, they're dressed up. They're all dressed up. And our oldest daughter, she had an all-white dress on. She was just absolutely smashing, really lovely. And of course, we said before they got out of the car, don't get in the mud, which they heard as a command from the Almighty. Get in the mud. It was like, there's mud? How many ways can we get in it? And so our daughter stepped into the mud. And to try to get out of the mud, she took another step. And no matter what she did, she could not get out of the mud. If she reached out to pull her feet out of the mud, now she had the mud on her hands. And she put her hands on her dress. Oh, no. Everything is a disaster now. It's a total mess. She needed grace. And mercy. She needed to be forgiven. She's crying. Oh no! And uh, and really, you know, I felt like an avenger of, of the Lord. I felt like wrath, you know, of the Almighty was probably the appropriate response. But the gospel comes into play here, doesn't it? And she needed forgiveness, but she didn't just need forgiveness. She needed cleansing. She needed all of that mud to be removed. She needed the damage to be undone. And that's what God does. He comes to bring us what he calls here the knowledge of salvation that is the dawn of a new creation. It says that in this text, in verse 72, he is remembering his holy covenant. He is showing the mercy promised to our fathers. And he goes on to say here, look at it in verse 78, it is the tender mercy of our God whereby, watch these words, the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Where else have you seen that phrase, the shadow of death? Well, that's the 23rd Psalm, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And what what John's saying here is the entire world has become a valley of the shadow of death. And Christ, who is the light, has entered it. This light of the good shepherd who enters into our darkness, the darkness of the world, He comes, as the Christmas hymn says, to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. When will that happen? Well, it happens in two stages. It's happened because Christ has come into the world to be the light of the world. The gospel will go on to say, in John's gospel, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light. He came to bear witness of the light. He looked and he pointed. He said, there's the light. 
It was Jesus. Jesus comes to bring light to our darkness. Isaiah saw that the world would be in darkness. He said, behold, darkness will cover the earth. Deep darkness, the people. The word for deep there means a moral darkness. There's a moral darkness in the world. It's full of malice. It's full of envy. It's full of greed. It's full of oppression and violence and hatred. And Christ enters into the valley of the shadow of death. The second stage is when Christ comes again. And you say, well, I wish that would happen. Nobody knows when Jesus will return. We know he will return. We don't know when. We don't know how. We know he shall. Now, we have to rest and trust in that in the same way that Elizabeth and Zacharias and all of their fellows waited for the first coming of the Messiah. When will it occur? I don't know. Personally, I'd like it about next Tuesday at three. Right? I mean, as you look at events in our world right now, you could easily look around and say, this would be a good time, Jesus, for you to come back. Have you noticed how bad things are? But we don't know when it will be. It may not be for another 10,000 years, which would make you the early church. 500 years from now, there'll be a seminary student sitting an exam in church history at the Spanish River Theological Seminary in Dubai. Going, Athanasius, Augustine, Mike Veets. How do I keep these church fathers straight? We don't know where we are in God's plan, but the God who made the promise and kept the promise of the first coming is the God who has made the promise and will keep the promise about the second coming. And what happens between those events is that you and I have an opportunity to receive the one who is the light of the world here in the valley of the shadow of death. Because as it turns out, the darkness is not just around us. The darkness, it turns out, is within us. In every human heart, every human heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, come deception, fornications, adulteries, lying, violence, hatred. And so it is the darkness of the human heart that must have the light of Christ that darkness is great, it's deep. We have such a well-lit life. We have street lights and screens. But it is a fragile grid of power that this world runs on. At 5.27 p.m. on Tuesday, November 9th, 1965, a giant power outage occurred in the northeastern United States. It plunged 80,000 square miles into darkness, including New York City. 800,000 people stuck in subways, people stuck in elevators in those giant, giant buildings. There were 
surgeons finishing operations by flashlight. You think Las Vegas is great? That's a place you could just unplug. That light will go out. But there is a light that is eternal. And it's the only light that can enter the darkness of the human soul and transform it. It's the salvation of God. God, who is the light of the world, who enters it, and he calls it a dawn. He says here, the sunrise will visit us from on high. This is a light that comes out of heaven to light those who sit in darkness. Christ enters the darkness. He entered the darkness in history. He was born in the night. And you know that because it says, Later in Luke's gospel, as we'll come to, and there were angels keeping watch over their flock by night. And they said, unto you is born this day a savior. Day and night were set there. Why? Because that's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and so on. And then it says, darkness was over everything over the surface of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. The light entered the darkness. John will say about the coming of Jesus, the light has entered the world and the darkness couldn't stop it. My friends, when Christ, the light of the world, comes into your heart, it transforms and changes everything. Christ came into this sin-darkened world and as the light, they snuffed him out. He hung on a cross between heaven and earth and when he did, in the middle of the day, the sun went out and it was dark. He was born in the night. He died in the dark and they took his body down from the cross from where he had died to pay the price for our sins and they laid it in a tomb but that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Because on the third day, while it was still dark, the women came to the tomb and found the stone rolled away. The light always enters the darkness. Jesus was born in the night. He died in the dark. He was raised before the sun came up because in his resurrection is the rising of a new day, the beginning of a new creation, a whole new life. And the God who said, light be, can speak light into your heart and drive away the darkness. The God who said, I'm sending my son into the world and kept his promise, promises to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. My friends, the God who forgets our sins does so because, look here, he remembers his promise and he sends his son to be our savior. And that's why we come to this table now together this morning. We come here to remember. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. We remember that the God who makes his promise keeps his promise. And here's his promise. His promise is to forgive us from all of our sins. I'd like to ask those who are serving at the tables to go to those stations for our deacons to prepare to wait on us. And friends, let me draw your attention to this 
word that's given to us in the sign of the bread and the wine. On the night in which he was betrayed, on the night in which he was betrayed, our Savior took bread, and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many, for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And this do, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Friends, we come to this table this morning because God, who promises to forget our sins, does so because he remembers his covenant and he will never break it. We come to this table because we are hungry to taste and see that the Lord is good, to be reminded of his kindness and his, his mercy to us that forgives and cleanses. And so we do not come to this table this morning because it is a reward for our good behavior. We come to this table reminded that God has had mercy on us who are sinners. This is not a Spanish river table, it's the Lord's table. So if you are a believer in Jesus, if you call yourself Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus and you're trusting in him for your salvation and not in any of your own works or righteousness, then I invite you to come. Come to the Lord's table. Deacons will dismiss us by row, will come forward to these tables. Some folks will go to the back, some will come to the front. You'll receive the elements for communion. And then you'll return to your seat and we'll all eat and drink together. But let's pray just now and ask the Lord to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. And here in the quietness of this moment, we remember that what you've done, Jesus, is all sufficient, is more than enough. That the demands of righteousness have been fully met by your perfect life that the demands of justice have been fully met by your sacrificial death on the cross, your blood shed for us. Thank you, our Father and God, that you who made the promise kept the promise. You who sent the Son will send him again, and we proclaim his death until that day. Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we pray. Amen. So, Deacons, would you please dismiss us by rows. Friends, come to the table.
His light is shining through Though dim I am still a reflection of mercy and His truth So I wait in the promise Yes, I wait in hope Yes, I wait in God's unending love. So I wait in the promise. I wait in hope. Yes, I wait in the power of God's unending love. Oh, of God's unending. We have a brief communion call and response, brief communion liturgy to share together. You'll see that appear up here. Lift up your heart. We lift them up to the Lord. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this table is God's word in sign to us who are gospel amnesiacs that Christ and what he's done is enough. Some of you may be struggling with shame today. You may be struggling with fear or thinking that somehow what's happened in your past, whether that was years ago or last night, is something that would make God reject you. But he has sent his son to save us. And listen to this. There is nothing we have done that is greater than what Christ has done. 
There is no sin we've committed that is greater than the sacrifice Jesus has made. And his blood cleanses us from all sin. For all who call on him, he comes to save. And so, for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, let's take the bread. And now, the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat with thankful hearts. Amen. And now the blood of Christ, the blood of the everlasting covenant, the oath that God made and kept, the blood that is shed to cleanse us from all sins. Let's take and drink with thankful hearts. Amen. Thanks be to the Lord for his great mercy and grace towards us, which has forgiven us and cleansed us. Let's stand together, shall we? And rejoice in the Lord who has come to save us, the Savior who gave his life for us, the King who will come again, amen.